I, I think that this section of verses is probably one of the most insightful uh, Bible concepts uh, in all of the Bible uh, that deals with our relationship with the Lord. You know, once we get saved, that should be the ultimate goal, to build a working relationship, a very intimate relationship with the Lord. And we have various things around here that help you do that. Uh, we have uh, our discipleship program where uh, people will take you and teach you the basic fundamentals of the Bible. A lot of people will come out of other churches or other religions, and this is all strange and foreign to them. Uh, maybe so not so much on Sunday morning, because we're, uh, but we don't get into the deep things as much as we do on Thursday night. But even at that, uh, we have things for you here that uh, people will take you and walk you through the Bible and help you figure it out. We have a discipleship too, which is really the next level. And, uh, uh, you know, that we, we, we'll help you with that. And, you know, your relationship with God, once you get saved, is, is the most important thing in your world. The most important relationship that uh, you will ever build. And I want to read for you today, verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. Now, we're going to come down and we're going to take it verse by verse. And I think you'll find some great principles here uh, that will help you. Here's what he says. He says in verse 15, My son, if thine heart be wise, my heart shall rejoice even mine. Yea, my reign shall rejoice when thy lips speak right things. Let not thine heart envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. For surety there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. Troy McKinney, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on my preaching this morning for me? I first met Troy, he was about 12 years old, and uh, we've been together many, many years. Thank you, Troy, I appreciate it. And yes, I wish Mom was with us today, that'd be a great thing. Now, when we started the book of Proverbs, way, way back, right before World War I, way all the way back there, you'll remember I gave you a simple little outline, a breakdown of the book of Proverbs. And I've told you this many, many, many times, every book in the Bible Every book in the Bible will have a natural outline that God has built into it, a natural breakdown to it, that God naturally divides it up for us. Years ago, when we started our church, uh, one of the things that we did, and I must confess to you, I wasn't looking long range down. I was just doing, thought this is what I needed to do for where we were, but the value of it now has been on the website for so many years, and I can't tell you the emails I get from people who are going through it. But I actually went through on a Sunday every book of the Bible, and I gave you the breakdown. I gave you how it breaks down in the natural way that God uh, has, has displayed it and, and laid it out. And, and you and I learning the Bible will simply be determined by uh, how we get it divided up. You're going to rightly divide it like the Bible says, 2 Timothy 2.15, Study the show thyself, approve unto God, a workman, needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, or you're going to wrongly divide it. Every heresy, every cult, everything that somebody teaches about the Bible today that is wrong comes from wrongly dividing it. And, uh, you know, um, 
you'll find that uh, every, every book is unique to itself. Uh, some books of the Bible will divide themselves up around one or two chapters. Book of Revelation is a great example of that. Book of Revelation breaks down around chapter 4 and chapter 19. If you get those two chapters and you see the three segment parts of that, book becomes very easy. Book of Acts is the same way. You know, the book of Acts is probably held up by people as one of the hardest books in the Bible to figure out. It's not really. You just get the division. Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 20. You build the book around those two chapters and divide it up, you're home free with it. Now, it doesn't work that way. Some are a little different. You take the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has 52 chapters in it, and it's a large book. But when you want to break it down, you'll find that Jeremiah is simply broken down into three sermons or three sections that he preaches to three different people groups. And it's, when you get that down, it's, it's, it's easy. Some, some go chapter by chapter, uh, like Matthew and Romans. And we've been through those books before. But each book will be unique to itself. And, you know, you, you get it rightly divided, and it will teach you and lay out for you the book. You know, when I, when I come to a book in the Bible, and I've been in the Bible for a few years now, but, and, and I spent 40-plus years laying all these things out. Somebody, old guy gave them to me years and years and years ago before I ever moved to Kansas City. He showed me this and he gave it to me. And it was what the old guys were, were teaching and how they were laying out the Bible. And I, I never forgot it. And I took what he gave me and expanded on it. And uh, for the last 40 years of my life, you know, it's been, the, uh, it's been the way that I approach the Bible. In fact, when I come to any book of the Bible, like you ask me a question on Thursday night Bible study or if we're up in our Bible study in Lincoln or wherever, you know, I always approach it from three aspects. I always ask myself three things. And I don't care how many times I've been through the Bible. I don't care how well I think I know the, bu- the book that I'm looking at. I'll ask myself three things. I've ingrained it in myself because it's the only way to really rightly divide it. The first question I ask myself is, who's he writing this to? Because that's vital. That's very important. The second thing I ask myself, what is the context of this book in relationship to what I'm looking for? And the third question I ask myself, what is the natural breakdown of this book? How does it lay itself out? You get those three working for you in the Bible, you'll figure out the Bible. And you'll remember that when we started Proverbs, I told you that Proverbs was divided into three sections. The first section is Proverbs chapter 1 through chapter 7. The second section is chapter 8 through chapter 30. And then the third section is a single chapter by itself, chapter 31. And I showed you how that in chapter 1 through 7, he focuses on and almost starts every chapter with the opening, my son. Throughout that, I think eight times in seven chapters, he makes a reference to my son. And what he's doing there. He's telling you, before you ever get into the book of Proverbs particular, he's telling you, these are what you look for. This is what you want to accomplish. This is what you want to put in your life. This is what you want to do, my son, over and over and over again. Then you get into chapter 8 through chapter 30. These will be the Proverbs themselves. Now, I think that's very special to me and probably for you too, but I can't speak for you because 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32 says that Solomon wrote over 3,000 Proverbs. You don't have anywhere near 3,000 in, in chapter 8 through chapter 30. So what that tells me is out of all 3,000, God handpicked what he wanted me to have. That makes that special to me. 
And then I start to look at it and go after them from that aspect. And then chapter 31 is the final chapter, and that is the end result. It's the end result of the first seven chapters of you getting the instructions from God as a heavenly father to his son, and then getting the Proverbs themselves and applying them to your life. The end result will be found in chapter 31, which is the virtuous woman. And everything in there is a beautiful picture of you and me as a Christian in our relationship with Christ. And no matter what book or where you're at in the Bible, uh, they'll always be based on, uh, in chapter 23 here, verse 12. This is what you want to do. Apply thine heart unto instruction and thine ears to the words of knowledge. There's the real key. Not just hearing what the Word of God says, but applying it and taking it and listening to it. The importance of the application of the truth of God's Word in our lives. And you remember last week we had a good session and I talked about the three applications of Scripture. Shows you how to break that down. Shows you how that you could get into the Bible and begin to figure it out. And I showed you that the Bible has a doctrinal application. That is what it specifically teaches. It has an inspirational application for what it means to you and applies to you. And then it has a historical application as to real time, what it actually played out in history. And I showed you how to see those three things in a very easy, easy format. So we're going to begin now in verse 15. And uh, I want to read verse 15 and then we'll begin to work our way through it. Here's what it says. My son, if thine heart be wise, my heart shall rejoice, even mine. Now the verse is saying that God, when you get, when you get wisdom of God in your heart, it makes God rejoice. He's happy about that. You know, I don't know what you know about the Bible or how much time you spend studying the Bible, but you know in the Bible there's a number of things that it says that God rejoices over. And uh, I remember one time I, I found that concept and I just started going through uh, all the things that God rejoices. And I'm going to tell you why in a moment. And uh, you know, in Luke chapter 15, verse 6 and 7, it says, And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and, re- and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than ninety-nine and just persons which need no repentance. Now the Bible says there that God rejoices over somebody getting saved. Now doctrinally, that's Israel, going back to last week, but in a practical way, that's the people we win to Christ. When you win somebody to Christ, there's rejoicing in heaven. So God rejoices over that. In Psalms 126, verses 1 through 6, it says this, When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, and our tongue was singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. Uh, The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Now that's God rejoicing over the restoration of the nation of Israel. That's God restoring Israel to her former glory. And all the people on the earth, the heathen, saying the Lord hath done great things for them, and Israel's rejoicing. Now again, doctrine, that's Israel. And you're 
song book here, we have, I think it's page 420, you have a song, Bringing in the Sheaves. It's based on this verse right here, and inspirationally, it's us rejoicing because we bring people in and bring in bringing in the sheep, bringing in the harvest, and all of that stuff. But doctrinally, as you look at it, it's God rejoicing over His people, the nation of Israel, being restored. Luke chapter 15, verse 24. It says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. That's rejoicing over a backslider coming back to God, getting out of fellowship. It happens in every church, happens in Christianity. Israel as a nation backslid with God and then got right. In this church, you have people who get out of fellowship with God. They backslide. They, uh, you know, the backslide is not a New Testament term. It's an Old Testament term. But you know what it means. It means instead of going forward, you slide backwards. You, uh, you, know, you get out of fellowship with God. And the greatest example of that is in Luke chapter 15 with the prodigal son. And so they rejoice when, when you and I get out of fellowship and then we get right with God and get, get back into things. That's the way it works. In John chapter 16, verse 20, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Now, that's a, that's a rejoicing at the second coming of Christ. God coming back to deliver Israel. Israel's going through the tribulation period, and the world is rejoicing. You sometimes and I will go through great tribulations in life and the world will laugh at us. They'll rejoice at what you're going through. But you know as well as I do, you know as well as I do that it only endures for a while because God is going to take your sorrow and turn it into joy. And that's worth rejoicing about. In Revelation chapter 17 and 18, he says, And cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Now that's a rejoicing in Revelation 18, 18 on the destruction of Babylon the Great. They're rejoicing over it. Now number six, and I just picked some of the best ones here. This is my favorite, hand down. I love this one. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. He's dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees who have rejected his teaching for their own man-made doctrine. And it says this, in that hour Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank the old Father, what is he thanking him for? What's he rejoicing for? Look at verse next part of the verse. Uh, o Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, so it seemed good in thy sight. He's rejoicing over the fact that God hid his Bible from the Bible scholar crowd. He's rejoicing over the fact that the people who reject his word, King James 1611 authorized version, the people who dump his book, the people who tell you that that Bible's not relevant to you, the people who tell you that, uh, uh, you know, get up in the pulpits every Sunday and talk about uh, everything about nothing in the Bible and know nothing about the Bible themselves, God, re God rejoices over the fact he shuts the door to revelation to them. They get nothing. So they got to get it out of somebody else's book. I appreciate that. 
Doctrinally, obviously, that's the scribes and the Pharisees. But I got news for you. The scribes and the Pharisees didn't die out in Jesus' time. They're around today. And the same ones who hated Jesus and his word back then, who feign being religious with God, are the same ones today who feign it, but want to take that Bible from you and destroy from you the greatest book that God ever gave man. And God says, I rejoice in my spirit. I'm rejoicing because they're stupid. And I ain't giving them nothing. The seventh one, Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. And I heard as it was a voice of great multitude and as the voice of many waters and the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. Now that's a rejoicing revelation 19, 6 and 7 of the day we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Going to be rejo- So there's a number of things in the Bible that the Bible says the Lord rejoices over. And you know, that is a great thing for me. I don't know how it is for you, but that's a great, I think that's a great test. I mean, when you look at those things and catalog those things, then you have to ask yourself a question. Do I rejoice in the same things that God rejoices in? You know, that's going to be a telling statement of where you're at with the Lord. In the Bible, the Bible lists seven things that God hates. Then the Bible lists seven things that God loves. I found out just dealing in the ministry for many, many years and dealing with God's people, most of the things that God hates are the things God's people love. And most of the things that God's people love are the things that God hates. And it's a great little test for all of us. Do you love the things that God loves and do you hate the things that God hates or is it vice versa? And here in Proverbs chapter 23 verse 15, we see God rejoicing when you and I get his wisdom into our hearts. Now that doesn't sound like a big thing, does it? I mean, but it is a big thing. Because this is where a real relationship with God is at. We have our own mindset of a relationship with God. We all do. And most of it is not based on the Bible. We, we hear bits and pieces here. We hear this. We hear that. And we formulate our own mindset what it really means to have a relationship uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm here to tell you a real relationship with God is right here. I want to talk to you about it this morning. You and him on the same page. Now, the verse starts out by saying, my son. That shows you the uniqueness of our relationship with Christ, a father-son relationship. And God, uh, with that, when you have the right relationship with God, you have what I call a God consciousness. 24-7. This means that as a child of God, you're aware of God in everything in your life, whether it's good or whether it's bad. We have a tendency to put God into good things in our life and then shut him out of the bad things of life. Truth of the matter is, he goes with you all through the day. In everything you do and see, taking God with you. You know, two of the most messed up concepts in Christianity today, and there is a lot of them. But two of the most messed up, screwed up concepts uh, in the Bible today uh, are the aspect of worship and prayer. 
uh, we have gotten so far from the Bible definition of it that it, and, and these two, let me just tell you, these two are the key to your relationship with God. You don't get these two right, and I don't care how big your church is. I don't care how many services you have. I don't care what you do. You don't get these two defined and right in your life from the Bible, you're out of luck. And that's where we're at today. We get the idea that, that I, I see it all the time. You drive down the church, uh, down the street, and there's a church marquee, and it says, 10 o'clock, worship service. Now, I understand that. But I want to tell you something. I think that's very misleading. I never want you to think, ever, that you have a worship service. Now, we worship God in our service this morning, but that's like the idea of America as a Christian nation. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. There's Christians who live in a nation, but there's no Christian nation. Worship is never designated at just a service. But when you say that, then people get the idea that, that there's a service, that worship has to do with going to church and having a service. I, I hear people all the time, they'll, they'll talk about the fact that, that uh, we're going we're gonna to worship God with our singing. And I understand that. And certainly, there's times when you sing the right songs and the right music that God, you can worship God. But we get the idea that, that, that you've got to have music, that it's a service and it's a song time, and that is where you worship God. I've heard pastors get up there, okay, we're going to worship God now with our tithes and our offerings. Now that's a little trick play up the middle. That is to get you to think that if you don't give, you're not going to worship. And so we, we use those little things. And of course, uh, I, I get it. I understand it. I have pastors that, that text me or call me or send me, and they'll say, uh, praying for your worship service in the morning. Well, I get it. I understand it. And I appreciate it. You don't know much about your Bible, but I do appreciate it. Now, you take the aspect of prayer. Prayer is really laid out in, again, one of the most misunderstood subjects in all of the Bible. I'm going to say something. You're probably not going to like it, probably not going to believe it. But Troy already prayed that you'd be uncomfortable today, so blame it on him. (laughs) Thank you, Troy. I can always count on you to come through for me. You know me too well. You know where I'm going. You always know how to pray. The real concept of prayer is not found in the New Testament. I know, I, I, I know, I, I get it. I, it. It's where we all go. But if you want the real fundamental definition of prayer, you're going to find it in Exodus chapter 27 and Leviticus chapter 10 and other places in the Old Testament. And I, and I get it, and I get it. Uh, it. You know, it just seems like every once in a while in churches, uh, I've had them off and on in my whole life, you get these spiritual Pharisees. And I got to tell you, worship and prayer are two of the key aspects of your relationship with Christ. But they also are two of the most dangerous things in Christianity. Because this is where the spiritual Pharisees live. This is where men and women live who know nothing about the Bible, who care nothing about the Bible, but they want to project themselves spiritual so they think that talking about worshiping God and, oh, I'm a prayer warrior, really sets them up as somebody that is really spiritual with God. Uh, we, I, I, many churches, and I'm not fighting anybody. I'm not. 
Many churches on Saturday morning, they'll have a 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock prayer meeting at the church for all the men. We don't have that. Now, I'm not a fighting with somebody that does, but here's my thinking on it. You, you, when I lay this out, you'll get it. So just hold your anger for a moment. You've worked all week long. I'm not going to drag you into bed on Saturday morning to have a prayer meeting. No, I'm not, I'm not putting down prayer. You'll see where I'm going in a moment. Years ago, we had a guy, I don't even think he's probably going to church anywhere now. Uh, he came up to the pastor where I was in a church there, and, and uh, he said uh, he wanted a key to the church. And the pastor asked him why he wanted a key, and he said, because I want to come in the church at 5.30 every morning and pray. Now, that sounds really good, and I'm not arguing with it. If you got insomnia and that's what you want to do at 5.30 in the morning, okay. But too many people take prayer and they make prayer the position of your body or the place you do it. Like God is listening better at 5.30 in the morning. Like if we all get here at 7 o'clock on Saturday morning, God is going to say, man, they got up early, so am I. Prayer never has anything to do with the position of your body or where you're at. Prayer has to do with your attitude of heart. It has to do with where your heart is with him. But our spiritual Pharisee crowd, they, they want to make it, you know, uh, they want to make it. I, I, had guy, I had a guy one time tell us that our, our prayer groups, Bob, on, on Saturday, on Sunday morning, weren't really biblical prayer groups. And uh, you know what? Because the idea was that you got to have corporate prayer. The guys, uh, you know, uh, you got to have time where you really lay out and pray. Let me tell you something. And I've had them say, why don't you have a prayer meeting with everybody before? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I don't. Because that Bible says pray without ceasing. That Bible says praying always. And if you haven't come to this church this morning, prayed up, having a prayer meeting ain't going to help me, honey. But that's where we're at today. Those two things are the most misunderstood things on this planet. We think that we've got to have a special place. And you know, and we speak we've got to have a special prayer language. I've seen guys play volleyball or basketball or softball. I've seen them talk about hunting and fishing and boating and doing all these things. And then you call them up to pray and it's, Oh, merciful God of the universe. Oh, mad potentate of all of eternity. Hear your humble servant. Is that how you talked on the ball field? Hey, if you got to have a different language to talk with God than you do with your friends, then he's not your friend. But that's where we're at today. You know why we're there? Because pastors have led their people to believe that prayer and worship have something to do with a lot of things instead of understanding that your prayer and worship is based on your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, where you're at. You can be driving down the street and have the greatest prayer time you ever had in your life. You can be out there fishing, hunting quail, hunting coyotes, whatever you want to do, and have the greatest, per- not on Sunday morning, oh, okay, let's get that straight, and have the greatest time with the Lord you ever had. Because prayer has nothing to do, as worship has nothing to do, and prayer is never something that you do. 
Now, you've got to get that in your head. I'm not saying you can't do these things, and, 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 but that's not the fundamental definition. Worship and prayer is never something that you do, but rather it's something that you are. You don't have a worship service. You don't worship God with your tithes and offering. You don't worship God in music. You live in a state of worship 24-7 in your relationship with Him. And until you get that right in your mind, you ain't ever going to have a real relationship with Him. Why, when you go back to those Old Testament passages and you look at the fundamental place where prayer has to start, you will find out to your shock and amazement that probably 99.9% of the prayers offered are God's people never leave the room. I, I can't help that. I didn't write the Bible. I just preach it. That Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. You never stop praying. And Ephesians 6, 8 says, praying always with all prayer and supplication. You don't have a time you pray, though you may have a time when we pray before we preach, or we may call a prayer meeting because somebody's going through some trouble. I get it. But the idea is, fundamentally, you better understand praise and worship and put it in the right context. Both are inward areas of our life that should be going on 24-7. God consciousness, wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever you look at, whatever thoughts come through your mind, it's you and God talking about it. Yes. You and God laying it out. This Pharisee syndrome. You ought to see Matthew chapter 23 when he dealt with the Pharisees. You know what the Pharisees love to do? Same thing the Pharisees of our day. They love to be seen of men praying. I'm praying now. <laughs> Two of the greatest examples of the Bible are Mary and Martha. Mary is at the feet of Jesus, worshiping Him, giving of herself. You know what Martha's doing? Martha's busy doing everything and then going to the Lord. You're not watching what I'm doing. The Lord says, yeah, I'm watching. She said, Mar Mar Martha, you are troubled by many, many things. Boy, she was too. How super spiritual we like to appear we are. Showing our relationship and displaying our relationship with God by our oratory and prayer. Or calling and saying, real prayer is we got to do this. And if you don't do it my way, then you're not really praying right. Hey, and people like that, hey, I've been in this business a while. I've seen them all my ministry like that. And I will say they all have one thing in common. They all have no real Bible-based relationship with God. They're just like the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' time. It's all show. In most cases, most of them have some really deep-seated problems. You know, if you really want to get this down about Proverbs and prayer, two of the greatest examples of you and my Christian life and our relationship with God and our God consciousness is found in two of the greatest men in the Bible, Abraham and Moses. You realize that those two men are the only two men in the Bible that the Bible says was God's friend? He said in Isaiah 41, 8 about Abraham, Abraham, my friend. He said about Moses in Exodus 33, 11, that Moses spake to God face to face like a man speaketh to his friend. 
Do you ever look at their lives? I mean, the only two men in the Bible that called God friend. I would think that if you and I really wanted to be God's friend, we'd spend a little time looking at their lives. They're our model for worship and prayer. Bible says that we have to worship God in John chapter 4 in spirit and truth. Your spirit in God's truth. That means if you don't have the truth of God, you don't have any worship. God went with them through the good times and the bad times. He was a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. In the Old Testament, God came down and he fellowshiped with them. He spent time alone with them. He guided them. He directed them. And yes, he even corrected them and chastised them. Now, you and I got it better than that. Because he lives inside you and me. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. We have access to the throne 24-7. Christ in you, the hope of glory. But the only way to have all of that is for you and me to get God's heart and make it our heart. And when we do that, he rejoices. If you got the wisdom of God in your heart this morning and you're operating by the principles of the Word of God and you got the joy, 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 joy down in your heart and you and God are walking together, I want to tell you, He's rejoicing in that this morning. And you ought to be too. I said you ought to be too. Thank you. I know, I know. You're all focused on lunch with Mother today. I get that. And I want you to do that. But right now, the next 20, 30 minutes, scrap mother and listen to what I got to say. (laughs) Getting God's heart and his wisdom. It has many blessings with it. I could stay up here all day and talk about it. But most of all, getting God's heart and God's wisdom will give us the blessing of the ability to make wise choices based on a wise heart, based on God's wisdom and understanding. Many of you are parents today. You tell me all the time. I love hearing it. You pull me aside all the time how proud you are of your kids when they make right choices. You'll tell me, well, there's a crowd at school that's really bad, but my kids have chosen to stay away from that. You you tell me because you're proud of that. But I want to tell you, not only are there some kids you ought to stay away from in school, but there's some kids in churches you ought to stay away from too. They're faced with a choice, and you see them walk away and do the right thing. They witness at school where everybody else does it. You're proud of that. They'll come home and tell you about who they witnessed to at school today, or how that they saw so and so, and they told them about the Lord. They take a stand for the Word of God. I think that it was Jaden, it was uh, J. Frank Noir. I think that's one. Well, how not, could you not be proud of that? He could have been anything. Oh, they had a thing in a school where you pretended you were somebody, and in front of people came by, and they like pushed a little button, and you told them what they were going to do, and you mimicked the guy. And they could have been anybody. You could have been a race car driver. You could have been an army guy. You could have been General George Patton. You could have been a ball player. You could have been anything. He chose to be J. Frank Norris. In a public school, 
dressed like Norris, cut his hair like Norris, and when they asked him about it, he let them have it. I, I, I think parents get proud of their kids, and you should. You tell me about it all the time, how proud you are of that. Well, we went to a funeral, and it was a Catholic funeral, or a Lutheran funeral, or a Methodist funeral, and my kids sat there, and on the way home, they pointed out everything wrong with what that in the Bible. That makes you happy. They'll go to a wedding, do the same thing. They'll go to some church, false church, but doesn't teach the Bible. They'll listen to the guy, and they'll pick up on it and have a whole thing outlined for you on the way home. And you're happy. You finally, you're happy because you finally begin to see at 15, 16, 17, and 18, all you did to train them when they were four, five, six, and seven. And you rejoice. You rejoice because they're making the right choices. Okay. Well, God's the same way. God rejoices. He rejoices when we stop making boneheaded choices. He rejoices when we start using all the things that he gives us. The Bible says, my heart shall rejoice. Even mine. God speaking. He rejoices in the fact that you start having a relationship with him, that the things that you have with him are more important than the things that are in the world. Look at verse 16. Yea, my reign shall rejoice when, they, when thy lips speak right things. Now, now look at the word my reigns, or my reign. Uh, it's, a, it, it's like the reign of a bridle on a horse that leads him one way or the other to go. And that's a reference to the Holy Spirit of God in your life, who your reign, your will, uh, the Holy Spirit of God over your will. Bible says in 2 John chapter 16, verse 13, when he comes, he will lead and guide us into all truth, talking about the Holy Spirit of God. God's reign in your life. It's very similar to the word R-E-I-G-N, reign like a king on a throne. And it comes back to the fact that in your life and my life, who's reigning on the throne? Now, where God the Father will rejoice over you getting a wise heart, his heart, his mind, the Holy Spirit will rejoice over what you uh, have in your heart and how it manifests itself in the words that you speak. Taking what's in your heart and letting it manifest it outward based on what's inward. I think, for me personally, one of the greatest passages anywhere in the Bible on my relationship with Christ and me understanding what I do and what I say is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. It's probably one of the greatest verses anywhere in the Bible or a set of verses that really gives insight into, into what we say and what we do and, and knowing and understanding it. He says in verse 13, Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. Now that verse says that, that you and I ought to always triumph in everything that we do. That's an amazing verse, given life and the things we have to deal with. He says, now thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and make us manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, and them that are saved and them that perish. To the one, a savor of death unto death, and to the other, the savor of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things. You know what he's saying? You know, back in the Old Testament, 
Christ hadn't come yet and he hadn't died in the Old Testament, they're actually giving animal sacrifices. And when you go back and look at those sacrifices, you'll find that there's a pattern to that that portrays and pictures what Christ is going to do on Calvary. And you're going to find that the, the, the sacrificial animals had to have some, had to have some uh, a prerequisite. There had to be some things that they couldn't be. They had to be a male. They had to have no blemishes on them. Uh, they had to, in that shape, be a picture of Christ without blemish. And they took them and they killed them and they put them on that altar and then they burnt the sacrifice. And when the fire came up and consumed that sacrifice, the Bible says that burning of innocent flesh went into the nostrils of God and it appeased God for their sin. It couldn't pay for it. Only Christ's blood could do that. That's why he's called the Lamb of God. That's why on the cross he said, I thirst. That's why the Bible says in the Old Testament his bowels boiled and he was burned black with heat. He was the sacrifice. And in the Old Testament when they burnt that sacrificial animal, it, the fire, the smoke, God was there and he smelled that innocent flesh dying, burning, and it reminded him of what was to come with his son. And he appeased temporarily the sins of the people and the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, Christ came and became our sacrifice. And he, on the sixth and the ninth hour, he paid the price. He went through all of that. He became our sacrifice. And he died and he goes through all the agony just as an animal dying on that altar. The Bible says that today, you want the victory, you want to rejoice and please God when you speak of Christ. When the rain in you is the Holy Spirit of God and you got God's heart, when you speak to someone about Christ, it fills that sweet savor and God smells it. And it reminds him of his precious son and the price that he paid on Calvary's cross. And the Bible says, and this is where we get all messed up, Bible says it doesn't matter if the person you're talking to gets saved or he doesn't. He says we're a sweet savor of those that live and those that die. It doesn't matter. That's between them and God. God is not pleased whether they get saved or not. He wants them to get saved. But at the end of the day, when you speak of Christ, what causes us to triumph in everything is the fact that we, by talking about Christ, was a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. It doesn't, God isn't interested in what the results are in that sense. He's interested in what you said about his son. What a great verse. And that causes us to triumph in all things. I've known preachers that preached and nobody got saved and they were, de they were depressed and despondent for the next 20 years. They couldn't even face it. They feel like they were some kind of failure. I've never felt that way. Bottom line is my job is not to get anybody saved. My job is to give you the truth. And I believe what the Bible says, if I lift up Christ, all men will be drawn unto him. So when I get in that pulpit, I only have one thing I'm caring about and that is I want to be a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. I want him to smell that sacrifice and I want to please him. And whether I want you to get saved, I pray for you to get saved, I tell you to get saved, I admonish you to get saved, but it's up to you. And that's what he says. He says, to one we are a savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? What he's saying there, who can figure all that out? Then he says in verse 17, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, amen, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. 
When we talk about him, we manifest the savor of knowledge in every place. And just like the Old Testament, God smells that sacrifice of his son. That's my job. That's my job as a pastor, to lift up Christ and the Holy Spirit of God rejoicing in that, what comes out of our mouth. Now, now look at verse 17. Let not nine heart envy sinners, but be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. Verse 18, for surely there is an end, and thine expectation shall not be cut off. Now, these two verses are one of the greatest principles that set up the teaching that I've given you many, many years ago, and we talk about it all the time, the aspect of short-term versus long-term. And it's, in most Christians and pastors, it's, it's an absolutely oblivious to it. You know, as a pastor, as a preacher, the principle of short-term and long-term should be at the heart of every message that I ever preach. Getting you see that some of the short-term decisions that you make are going to have long-lasting, disastrous consequences. And as a Christian, it should be at the heart of every decision you will make. Short-term, it looks great, but long-term, it's a disaster. And it could cost you everything that God had for you. In verse 17, it talks about the envy of sinners or the world. And what they do uh, all uh, will be short-term. They will never see the long term of it or the consequences of a short term uh, for them. And you see it in everything. You know, you, the, the commercials that you see for, uh, for booze and beer and all of that stuff. You know, it's always, it's always shrouded in a party time. It's always young kids at the beach. It's always a bunch of places filled with people and Oh, Captain, Captain, hi, Captain, hi, Captain. And it's, it's just, it's a joyous time. All the captains, everybody's a captain. Now we're all going to get drunk. What a great time we're having. Or how about this? This bud's for you, particularly for you, because you're special. Heineken, good friends, good times, lower brow. And, of course, when you get off work before the real drinking starts, you've got to have happy hour. It's all portrayed. Or beer in a Bible study. It's all portrayed. It's a wonderful thing. Never shows you the end result. Never shows you the long-term disasters of a failed marriage or your kids becoming alcoholics or you becoming an alcoholic, losing everything in your life to booze, completely destroying everything you are and everything that God. Never show you that. I watch all the kids. I live by Raytown, and I watch the kids. First thing they get out of school, they do is light up a cigarette, walking home. And I know it's cool. It's cool. Everybody does it. You know, I, I, I never drank in my life, and I never smoked in my life. I better tell you, you know, like everybody else, I tried it, just tried it one time. I, I, I can never get the hang of it. I got to be honest with you, I'm not envying sinners, but I always was envious that somebody could blow smoke rings. I think that's the neatest, coolest thing on the planet. I never could get my mouth right. I have taught myself to do lots of things. I've taught myself to call turkeys with a, with a little turkey call, and I, I swallowed three of them before I got it down. And I realized it was just about getting your, your mouth and your jaws all right and pretty. I can call turkeys with the best of them. I mean, I can't, I mean, I, oh, 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 oh. Well, I just, oh, there he is, man. 
I get it. And you know, when you're hunting turkeys, it's kind of a sadistic thing because it's mating season. And you're pretending you're a hen with a night little negligee on over here in the bushes. And this male turkey, he's, it's time to have little turkeys. And he's gobbling, not because he's saying, he's gobbling because he says, hey. Oh, they don't have the internet to get on the website. They got to do it this way, you know. And, and they're out there, you know, and, and, and I always thought, it was, I did it for a while. I don't do it anymore. Uh, one of the reasons I just felt, I felt bad. I mean, here's a turkey coming around the bush thinking he's going to find a the sweetest thing in his life, and he gets a 12-gauge right in the face. <laughs> Come on! But I got the calls down. And you know, when, you, when, you, when they, they start coming, sometimes they'll hang up. They're not sure. And what you do is you give a, you give a couple yelp, 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 yelp. They'll gobble back. Now you know they're interested. Very good. And, and then, and then you'll, you'll get a couple more, and then they'll, they'll, they'll start coming in, and they'll hang up. So then you've got to revert to some of the secret calls. You've got to do a cluck. A cluck is a, sometimes called a perk, and it's just, boop, 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 and that means, you know, she's interested. And I've had them hung up there, and they've never had. Once they get to that point, and you've tried to bring it all in, and you've done everything, and they get hung up there, just out of gun range. I've never had this call fail. I, it's my own technique. And it's, 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 you, you get down low, cup of the thing in your hand, and it's like this. Hey, stupid, I'm over here behind this bush. Works every time. Then you shoot them. I'm not sure what that had to do with anything I'm talking about this morning, but I'll just tell you what. Oh, I know what it was. I've taught myself to do I could never teach myself to smoke. I remember the first time, and I, I, I watched these guys when I was in the Army. They'd, they'd come out their nose. In their mouth, out their nose. How does the world, how that go? I couldn't figure it out. And, I, I, you know, and it was amazing to me. Then I saw a guy over there. You were coming out of there? I can't even blow a bubble with bubble gum, let alone blow a smoke ring. And so I'm sitting there. And so I, I said, I'm, this looks good. I'm in the Army. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like the guys. You know? I already figured out how to go to the PX and drink beer without ever drinking beer. You get a beer, a can preferably, because you can't see how much is in it that way, you, but don't drink it. Then you go to the restroom, pour a little bit out. Pretty soon the can's empty. I'll take another one. Boy, that's good beer, isn't it? Never drank it. The taste was terrible. I, I don't, and, and when I tried to smoke a cigarette, I got off one place and lit that thing up, and I just thought you swallowed it down and it come out your nose. Oh. It, 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 trust me, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> trust me, guys, it doesn't work that way. I died. <laughs> After I got saved, I come to the conclusion, reading the Bible, that the only people who actually have smoke in their lungs are people in hell. And I asked myself, why would a child of God want to imitate a person in hell? Because in hell, the smoke of their torment ascended forever and ever, and it never gets out of their lungs. But I'm, I'm telling you, it's cool, you know. I mean, 
but they don't show you. Remember that commercial on TV about the older woman and she, she, she had a hand on her own hand because she couldn't talk and before she goes out she snaps on her face because she's got no nose. She snaps her jaw in because she has no teeth. My mom did this before, long before when I was, and, 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 you know, and then she puts her plug in and puts the thing on so she can talk. And, 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 and they say, and she said, smoking caused this to me. Now I'm ready to go out. Yeah, with Freddy Krueger, maybe. <laughs> Golly, man. They do that. So you say, hey, this is cool. Yeah, it's real cool. Would you hand me my snap-on face now? <laughs> Crazy, man. Now, now they, they, they went way beyond it. Now they have vapor. Yeah, that's the big thing now. All the kids. I vaped last night. <laughs> yeah, I vaped. Yeah, we had some, I went out with a guy last night and we vaped. Well, I'll tell you, I'm so proud of you, I don't know what to say. <laughs> now, I've got to ask you, be honest. What profit is there in smoking? I'm, I'm, okay, you don't have to answer, because I'm just telling you, I'm, there is none. And I think vaping's even, I mean, you may get a little high with a cigarette the first time around, but after a while, you get addicted to it. But you take vaping. What is the process of that? Why, why, why does somebody, why does some young kid want to vape? Why would he do that? I'll tell you why. Verse 17. You're envying the world. And you want to be like him. You're not envying Moses. Or you're not envying Abraham to have a relationship to be God's friend. You're doing what the verse says here. Let not thine heart envy sinners. You're envying them. So you want to be like them. And the envy of every sinner will be the short term that looks good now, but my, 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 wait till the long term gets here. And I'd say based on my, expect, my, my experience that every tragic mistake that is made that costs us dearly will simply be based on only looking at the short term and envying what the world has. Because it takes a wise heart with good range that the Holy Spirit of God can rein you in to see both. Every child of God on planet Earth should make their short-term decisions based on the long-term outlook of the judgment seat of Christ. Yes. Verse 17 says, But be thou in the fear of the Lord all the day long. You see, you can't have a real relationship with God and the Holy Spirit without seeing and understanding this verse and then the awesomeness of who He is and the power that He has. The power and purpose for your life, fearing Him in that sense. You know, in the Bible, another messed up concept is the idea of our liberty in Christ. <laughs> Again, completely messed up on it. Most Christians think that our liberty in Christ is a license for you to do whatever you want to do and justify it because you're not under the law. And that's how it's used today. Do whatever you want now. You're saved. I've heard them tell me that. I can do whatever I want. I'm saved. It's okay. Don't judge me. But the Bible definition of that liberty is something else. No wonder they want to get rid of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 says, All things are lawful for me. Sure, I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. 
But then it says not all things are expedient. Expedient means not all things are wise. Then he says all things are lawful for me. Now here comes the definition, but all things edify not. Notice how the word expedient is defined by the word edify. In other words, I can do whatever I want to do as long as it edifies me in Christ's sake. That's the New Testament Bible-based understanding of the word liberty. Then 1 Corinthians 6, 12, for the bottom line, all things are lawful unto me, but all not things are expedient, just like 1 Corinthians 10. Now watch. Watch the Bible lay itself out. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. You're not under the Old Testament law, but there's some things that you can't do if you don't have the reigning restraint of the Holy Spirit of God and the wisdom of God to understand it. It's going to get control over you. He's saying it may, all things may be lawful, but all things are not wise because they don't edify me. So some things may be lawful, but in time they will control me. But when I have a wise heart and a good reign, I will understand what to stay away from. And God will rejoice because we make the right choices. Stay away from the world. And sometimes today, unfortunately, stay away from some churches. You know, there's a great illustration of this that many of you military guys will understand, and that is the the understanding of the term liberty. Uh, in the U.S. Navy uses the term when they get to go out on their own off ship, they call it liberty. You're on a ship all week long, you're out to sea or whatever, you come in and you get weekend liberty. And on that liberty, you don't have any officers you've got to report to, you don't have any duty, you're on your own. And you can go do whatever you want to do, whoever you want to do it with. But when you get back on the ship on Monday morning, you'll give an account of that weekend of liberty if you got into trouble. I mean, you may have gotten out of the bar at 2 a.m. on Saturday morning, but the SPs will be waiting for you at the ship when you come back on Monday morning. And you will give an account of your liberty while you were gone. And at the judgment seat of Christ, we'll be waiting for us. And at the end of our Christian life, we will give an account of our liberty. Liberty in Christ was never intended for us to do what we wanted to do, but rather the liberty to do whatever God wanted me to do that will edify me and make him rejoice. That's how it works. Look at verse 18. For surely there is an end, and their expectations shall not be cut off. Now, here's where we separate the sheep from the goat, the men from the boys, and everybody in between. Now, the reason why you who are here who have wisdom... And there's many of you who have been in the Bible now, you got it put together, you got a good handle on it, you uh, really are doing good with it. And the reason why you who have wisdom will never get into some of the stupid stuff that those who do not have wisdom, you'll never do it, is simple. It's because you look long term and you see that whatever they're going into is a dead end street. You'll look at something, you'll say, no value in it for me. You'll look at it and say, no profit in it for the Lord. Wrong investment. You'll look at it and say, no future there. You'll look at it and say, that's a dead-end relationship. It won't go anywhere. The man and woman who has a wise heart and a good solid reign will never envy any sin or sinner with what they have. You know why? Because he knows how it's going to play out at the end. They got wisdom. 
They see that all this stuff show, all this show and tell, all this great stuff. At the end, it's going to come to a disaster. Hey, I've seen Christians, known Christians, who have all the money in the world, all the things in the world, have everything in life you could ever want. And you look at their houses, you look at their cars, you look at their lifestyle, and the average person would say, man, I would just love to have that. Boy, they got it made in the shade. But you know what? When it comes to the Word of God, they couldn't get something out of it with a flashlight and a searchlight. You think I'm going to envy that versus the book that God will give you? It's the riches of the world versus the true riches. And for the sinner saved or lost in his foolish ways in time, he will have all his expectations destroyed. And he'll be cut off and it'll come to an end. And he's left with nothing but his broken dreams and his shattered life. They're left with an emptiness and the brokenness of having lost all that they could have been for the Lord. I've seen it 10,000 times in over the 40-some years of ministry. I've seen the money, the possessions, the fame, the big houses, uh, the, fam- the fancy lifestyles, and at the end of his life, they are absolutely empty. They lose their kids, they lose their marriage, they lose everything that they thought was something, and it comes crashing down at the end. There are people who could write you and me a $30,000 check today and give it to you and never miss it. But spiritually, they couldn't cash a 15-cent check because they're spiritually bankrupt. And we're going to envy that? Can't speak for you. I'm going to envy that? I'm going to say, gee, I want to be like you? But the wise in heart, see, there'll be no end There'll be no end to his expectation. Because he has God's wisdom in his heart and his future is as solid and bright as the promises that God gives him. And as the principles that he follows. There's things that I've learned in my life watching. I've made a lot of mistakes, did a lot of stupid things. That's why I never fault anybody else for the dumb things that you did. I, I could write a book on them. But I've learned some things. And fundamentally, verse 18, where it says, For surely there is an end, and their expectations shall be cut off. Breaking that down where we can all grasp it, I've learned some things. And here's what I've learned. I've learned that life without God's wisdom is a hopeless end. But I've also learned that life with God's wisdom in your heart is endless hope. It'll endure forever. When you got saved, God intended three things to change about you. I can't speak to who's saved or who's not, but I would say that if a person is truly saved, these, these things ought to be evident. Because when we got saved, God changed three things. The first thing he changed was the inner man. You're no longer who you once were. You're now a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, all things become new. You don't think the same way. You don't look at things the same way. You don't go the same places. You don't do the same things. You know why? Because there was an inner change in man. The second thing that God intended, once the inner man got changed, then the outer man got changed. Now everybody sees outwardly what took place inwardly. 
when we baptize people up here. Baptism obviously doesn't save you in any way, shape, or form. But it's a public profession. When we put them under the water, it's a picture of Christ coming down and going death, through, under death and coming back up in the resurrection. Buried in the likeness of His death. Raised in the likeness of His resurrection. And what it is, it's a public expression publicly to everybody out here outwardly what has actually taken place inwardly. So the inner man will change and then of course the, the outer man will change. You'll now not do the same things you used to do. But the third thing God intended for it to do was to change the inner man, the outer man, but then to change the end of man. Now your life has purpose. Now there's no reason for you to wind up as a disaster in your Christian life. There's not a reason for you to lose your family, your kids, your marriage. There's not a reason for you to lose anything because the promises and the wisdom of God is an, is a, is an endless hope. It's as bright as the promises in the Word of God. It'll give you everything that you need if you allow that wisdom of God to come into your heart and let God rejoice in it. You know, when you rejoice with somebody, not only do you want to be happy for them and with them, but in my case, it makes me want to get closer to them. It makes me see what made them happy, how I can keep that perpetuated and make them happy. And that's what God does. When you start to put the wisdom of God in your heart and He rejoices, he gets closer to you. You get closer to Him. He starts drawing you in and you start talking to Him and laying things out and He starts to get into that. And then He starts to talk back to you. Like Abraham and the Lord all the way back through there. You know, and how God talked with him and how Moses and him talked. And how Moses, he was up there on that mountain and him and God talked. And when Moses came down, his face shined because he'd been with God. And I'm going to tell you something. When you and I are with God and we have that relationship, your face needs to shine. And everybody will see it. I close. He says in Psalm chapter 1, one of my favorite passages, verses 1 through 3. He says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. I want you to notice that there is a season to our fruit bearing. There'll come a time in your life and my life where we'll not be able to bear fruit. Apple trees don't bear fruit in February. There'll come a winter time of your life and my life when we get to the point where we can't do it anymore. So he says that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf shall not wither. There's your family. There's your kids. We call it a family tree. A tree with roots, with leaves, with your kids. You'll bring forth your fruit in your season and your leaf shall not wither. And whatsoever you do it shall prosper. Then he simply says in verse 4, wow, what a contrast. The ungodly are not so. See, it takes you and me building a relationship with God that is God-conscious. It takes my son, if, if thine heart be wise, 
my heart shall rejoice, even mine. It takes, yea, my reign shall rejoice when thy lips speak right things. It takes that relationship with God on that intimate basis of God consciousness, that he goes everywhere with you, that you're conscious, that your prayer is constant. Your worship is constant. Everything that you do, every aspect of that intimacy of the worship and the prayer is based on not who's with you, not where you're at, not what time of day, not what kind of prayer is it, just simply based on the wisdom of God in your heart and you and Him as His friend. You know, we sing the song, great song, what a friend we have in Jesus. And many times I wonder what kind of friend Jesus has in us. Because that's the real key. He's waiting to be your friend. Most of God's people are oblivious wanting to be His. But it takes the wisdom of God in your heart and then starting that rejoicing process between you and God that you build it on. Well, we'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for all you do for us today. Bless the rest of this day as we uh, take our moms out and uh, uh, be there with them and to enjoy them and let us be respectful and thank them for all that they've done for us and all that they've sacrificed. And truly, Father, we thank you for uh, being for us uh, how good you are. Thank you for putting up with us. Thank you for uh, enduring us. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you, Father, for being our friends. And we just love you now and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.